Afto. A conversation with Deborah Bloom about the Poison Squad. So the Poison Squad is about, to me, this amazing moment in American history when we invent food safety for the first time and and decide what that means in terms of protecting consumers and all of the political battles and cultural battles that are involved in that. And one of the things that's really fascinating to me about that is that when I started the book, that's the way I saw it, an amazing moment in history. And then as I continued doing the research, I realized that we're still fighting those battles, right? The political battles, the cultural battles over what it means to keep people safe and the best ways to do that. And that the foundations for the discussions and arguments and backs and forths and uh, way we think about what is safe food and what not are all rooted in this period. So it's both a moment in history and a story that completely applies to where we are today. And it's a reminder, I think, uh, of what I tend to think is important in writing about history anyway, which is that you really don't understand where you stand until you know how you got there. What can AFTO members learn? I actually talked to someone at a foundation who said Americans tend to suffer from regulatory memory failure, which I think is true. Once the regulations pass and we're living on the safer other side of them, we don't remember how bad it was. And and certainly since a lot of my lead up wind up stories in the 19th century, we really don't remember this and it's not taught well in history either. The the, the just how crazy bad the unregulated food and drug landscape was in the 19th century. And so for this organization, which actually played an important role in its original form in getting some of these regulations passed, it's a real look at what it was like in the world before regulation. Let's get past our regulatory memory failure and let's look at why we laid down these rules and and how far we've come. How do we apply the lessons? I think there's two things going on there. One is, you know, it would be great to say that we had resolved all the issues of the past, but we haven't. Um, Wiley, for instance, came up with a list of food dyes that he thought were acceptable. Those food dyes are almost all still in supply. His original list almost stands intact as of this day, right? We've taken a few things out. So some of the um, fights that he was directly engaged with, should we put sodium benzoate as a preservative? Uh, We still use sodium benzoate as a preservative. Some of the fights of that time are ones that we still try to wrestle with today directly. The other part of it is that he began the practice or began advocating for the idea that we set standards based on evidence. Right, so the Poison Squad, which is the title of my book, are basically is saying, I mean, it's a strange experiment, but it's basically saying, so you think you want to regulate formaldehyde in food? Let's get some actual evidence as to what it really means if you're eating it, right? So he began for the United States that practice. That's a practice that I think today we bring forward uh, in, into the future with far greater technical skills and scientific understanding. And so it's on us to say, yes, 
if I was going to say formaldehyde is still in the food supply, I mean, it isn't some furniture and stuff. But yes, we actually know that this is safe, but let's, let's use modern standards to figure out how we should approach it. So some of it is just that, that message from the past that you use the best standards you have and that you try to use them effectively. And the other thing is, and, and this is something I think with food and drugs in particular that Wiley confronted was uh, something that still happens today, which is that science and technology are ever inventive. So not only do we have these compounds from the past, but almost every day there's a new formula, there's a new product, there's a new way of trying to deal with things. And it's a reminder to us that it is on us in this modern time as we come up with all these new creative ways to preserve food or improve food or color food. Or I'm, I'm sticking with food because that's the primary point of my book. To be aware that the lessons of the past remind us that you really do have to understand what you're putting into food and drink. And that we it's still on us to study them, to pay attention, and to try to use the gifts that we have, the inventive gifts we have in a responsible way. What is the Poison Squad? So Harvey Wiley was the director of the Bureau of Chemistry at the Department of Agriculture, which by far predates the FDA or on any other regulatory agency. And in that position, he launched an investigation of the safety of the American food supply and tried, starting in the 1880s, to get some kind of standards and regulations set, even labels, which they didn't have, right? Um, inf information labels, anyway. Um, and so finally he became so frustrated with the lack of progress that he decided the only way that he was going to get the information he needed to push change was to do uh, human testing, test these sub-additives in food on human subjects, skip animals, skip everything, just go right to the human subjects. And he actually called this, when he proposed it and got funding for it in Congress, he called it the hygienic table trials. And of course, the Washington Post, this is all in Washington, D.C., found that a completely boring title. And so the reporter who was assigned to cover this uh, nicknamed it the Poison Squad. And that was the name that stuck. And it stuck in the department. It stuck among scientists. And it became the phrase that was used when these studies got covered. And basically, what he did was, he persuaded uh, volunteers, they were young workers at the Department of Agriculture, they weren't getting paid very much. They could get three free meals a day, seven days a week, of really outstandingly good food. And the only deal was, well not the only deal, but the big deal was that half of them at any given moment had to be adding the food preservative he was studying at the time into their food. And they did that in capsules, and they would stand by the tables and watch them take these capsules. And so he had a list. He had formaldehyde, which was a popular food preservative, especially in dairy. He had borax, which was another popular food preservator, salicylic acid, sodium benzoate, some of the dyes, right? Copper sulfate was a popular dye. And these guys would take these in escalating doses, and they would have doctors who would study the progress of their illness or lack of illness. And so when the first study came out in 1904, and that was borax, 
lo and behold, it was really dangerous to eat it in your food every day. And it, this particular study was both the first real epidemiology kind of evidence of this is a, a risk and a huge jolt to the public consciousness. It was brilliant. It's really primitive science. You don't look at it and say, well, let's replicate that, right? But it was brilliant for its time, and it was a brilliant piece of um, public information. Who is Harvey Wiley? I like complicated people, and, and I've actually come to believe that the people who change the world, and he's one of them, are usually really difficult, right? They're so absorbed and focused to, and tunnel visioned about what they're trying to accomplish that they can be really hard to live with. And, and I like, as I said in the talk, to write about people who, it, it, with their individual sort of spirit and power, do change things. He, and they're all really complicated, focused, obsessed people in different ways. Wiley was very on this subject of individual safety. He, and and he, he's an interesting guy. He grew up uh, on a farm in Indiana. Uh, his father was a farmer, but also an uh, itinerant um, evangelical preacher and a conductor on the Underground Railroad. And, and I tell this story from the book of him sitting his kids around and reading them Uncle Tom's Cabin and getting them really engaged in social justice issues. And the idea that you're put on earth to do good. And, you're, and, and if you don't do good, you have failed at your time on earth. I think that came directly from his family. And he brought that into chemistry. He trained, he got an MD in Indiana, trained in chemistry at Harvard. And he will, you'll find him writing, even at a very young age, about chemistry in the service of mankind and chemistry in the service of good. So when he took on the issue of food safety and, he, and, and integrity, and that he started when he was a professor at Purdue before he went to USDA, I mean, that was it. He was, I sometimes have called him a holy roller chemist, right? He was a man on a mission. So he was a man on a mission that made him rigid in what he was trying to accomplish, which could make him really hard to live with. I mean. As I also said in the talk, people loved him. He was delightful and charming and funny and kind in a lot of ways. But on this one point, I want, once we realize that this is not safe, I want us to make it safe. It's our duty to keep people safe. He would not bend, and he wouldn't bend even on small points. And the people who did tangle with him, that was their big complaint, was that he was uncompromising. Right. Now, maybe you never change anything if you compromise all the time, right? Maybe the people who actually do change things are those that refuse to back down ever. Um, I'm more strategic by nature, so there were points when I would think, man, if you had just said, yeah, okay, never mind those leaves on the label, right, we'll let them go. Um, you would have won the bigger fights. So, you know, so in that sense, I found myself being a little critical. Having said that, I haven't changed the paradigm of the United States and consumer safety, so you know, take my own criticism with a grain of salt. But yeah, I think he could be really difficult. What sparked your interest in Wiley? 
I'm a toxicology journalist, is how I think of it. And so uh, back in 2010, I wrote a book called The Poisoner's Handbook, which was about forensic toxicology. And, um, and that really, of course, grew out of my deep love of chemistry. But, um, and after I did that book, I spent a lot of time writing about uh, compounds that are bad for you. I wrote a column for the New York Times called Poison Pen. I wrote a, a blog for Wired called Elemental, right? All of it sort of based in toxicology yeah, and, and did a lot of tox writing. And, and I love it. I love the, you know, trying to figure out uh, what risks we should care about and which ones we should just let go. It's a fascinating puzzle. So I'd been doing that when I started on this book, you know, for quite a few years. And also I'm a science historian, a popular science historian. So I love history and what it tells us about who we are. And I had run across in my sort of science history pursuits uh, references to the poison squad. And, and so it really started with me saying, what in the world is that? Right? Just what is it? I don't understand it. I ended up, I looked at it, I, I wrote a piece I think for Slate about it, I looked at it a little more and then my editor came back and said, you know, we'd like you to write another book. And I said, let me chase this a little bit more because this is such a strange experiment. And when I got into it, you know, you start saying, why would a scientist be so desperate that the experiment he decides he has to do is to feed poisonous things to his co-workers at the USDA? I mean, it takes a certain, you know, moment of pure, I'm back in a corner and this is the only way I can see. And so what brought him to that point? And when I started looking at that, the kind of early history of uh, food in the United States, the, uh, you know, the th some of the things I talked about in the talk, the, you know, the formaldehyde preservation of milk, the incredible food fraud that was going on at the time, I thought, you know, this is a really interesting story. And for me as a writer, it's always the story behind the story that makes me want to write the book. So it's both the story of this crusading chemist who's trying to change the world, but it's the bigger picture of what is food safety and when did we start to take it seriously and how did we come to terms with it in this country, right? Both of those things, and, and to me a book needs both. It can't be just, hey, I'm writing a story about a kind of cool chemist. It has to be that bigger, you know, sort of social, cultural, important issue. How could this inform cannabis regulations? So I talked a lot about research when I answered that question because I'm aware as a science journalist that we don't have a lot of good data, right? Because marijuana and cannabis and the many products related to it have been illegal, the federal government's been very restrictive on its study. I mean, to the point that it even controlled where you could get your materials where unfortunately the federal government didn't do a very good job of preserving those materials well, which you know further complicated the research. So now we're in a period where you, you were seeing this sort of spread of state legalizations of cannabis products. I live in Massachusetts where it is wholly legal. Um, and 
where and lots and lots of people are using these products and we still are in this position that we were where Wiley was where we're using products that we don't understand very well and so my answer was not let's go back because you don't go back my answer was let's go forward and let's really put some investment into studying these so that we can figure out you know what the benefits are what the compounds are that we know are really good in this right and 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 amplify that if we do further research and we find compounds that actually we do consider risky then we try to deal with those but the first step is understanding and and, and when i talk about regulation which as you know i like to just call consumer protection but when i talk about regulation i, I want evidence-based regulations so as we move this forward you know, let's understand what's going on. And I think that would not only help regulators, but people who are going to be involved in these products and making these products, they're gonna, <coughs> sorry, they're gonna, <coughs> cough, cough. They're gonna be better products. They're gonna be more efficacious. They're going to do more good if we better understand the material we're working with. So to me, the big imperative now is let's study this and let's get it right. For more information, visit www.afto.org or www.debrabloom.com.